What's up, guys? Welcome to the Humans of MarTech podcast. His name is John Taylor. My name is Phil Gamash. Our mission is to future-proof the humans behind the tech so you can have a successful and happy career in marketing. What's up, everyone? Today, we're joined by Kate Naruzzi, VP of Deliverability at Mailgun by Cinch. Kate started her career in network and anti-spam engineering roles at two major ISPs, Verizon and AOL. And she then moved to the vendor side at Fishbowl, a customer engagement platform for restaurant marketers, where she led email deliverability operations. Kate's profound experience in email deliverability then guided her to a pivotal role as SVP of deliverability and email compliance at SparkPosts, one of the industry's most popular deliverability platforms. Kate's also been co-chair of the Complaint Feedback Loop Committee at Messaging Anti-Abuse Working Group. She's an advisor and investor of various startups. She's also an advisory board member of Persian Women in Tech with a mission to close the diversity and gender gap in STEM. Today, Kate serves as the VP of Deliverability and Product Strategy at Cinch, a public customer communications company that acquired Mailgun two years ago. Kate, super excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to uh, dive into email deliverability on on the show. We've been deep on like CDP and data topics, but uh, this is going to be a, a refreshing change, but something I've been really deep and, and passionate about in, in my current full-time role here. So I, I was fascinated by your experience going through your journey. Uh, how how valuable was it for you to spend four years at, at AOL and anti-spam ops on the ISP side of things, and then getting to apply that insider industry knowledge to platforms like SparkPost and Mailgun. Um, so it was a very a bold change when I started my career as an anti-spam engineer at AOL in early 2000. Email marketing was still new, so AOL mm-hmm. was the first ISP that offered reporter spam button to their members, and other ISPs such as Microsoft and Yahoo followed the same path shortly after. Uh, so later on, when I joined the other side, so when you are working at the ISPs, your main job is to make sure the bad actors are not reaching your uh, members' inboxes. Right. When I joined the marketing or ESP side, helping brands and marketers to make sure that their traffic does not come across as a spammy, that was a huge shift of like thinking because mm-hmm. like coming from the world that like the problems were different and the fight was different in order to come to this side of the business of like email service providers, helping their emails, getting into the inbox and kind of um, changing that um, mindset was a little bit challenging at the beginning, but it also gave me a really good insight of what the brands should be doing in order not to come across as a spammy. Yeah, definitely super interesting. Did you get into any like philosophical debates with yourself when like you're on the ESP vendor side and you're trying to reach inboxes, even though sometimes you know that like the message is is marketing, sometimes it's newsletter, it's not like spam, but like you're you're sending out marketing type content and having been on the other side of trying to block like the spamming side. Did, did you get into like some of those debates? Like um, I'm curious there. Yeah, I can think of actually a one funny one. When I moved from AOL to uh, to Fishbowl, which is an email marketing platform for restaurants, um, I was woken up by an escalation by one of the, I think it was Red Robin or, or um, 
yeah, one of their major brands, I believe it was in Red Robin and their birthday campaign was being blocked at Yahoo or AOL. And I was like, you woke me up because the birthday campaign didn't go through. You can you only wake me up if like some really suspicious activities are happening that they're like the privacy of people are at risk. So that was the first. And then everybody was like, no, this is major because Red Robin is our top two customer and the birthday campaign does it. So that moment was like a really defining moment that I am no, I am on the other side of the business <laughs> that I like the importance of things and like switching uh, was a little bit fun, but yeah. Yeah, definitely a fun, a fun shift. And uh, I, I mean, I'm sure throughout your career, you've gotten access to a large volume of data on the impacts that email content has when it plays a role on undeliverability and whether it gets through those spam filters and lands in the inbox and us marketers who who work on uh like maybe not even the vendor side but for marketer marketing companies like sending out emails we can only rely on like much smaller scale user experiments and industry research i often go back to like the data that hubspot did on a lot of like tests to billions of emails on like how much HTML is landing in the inbox versus text. How much does a GIF like impact deliverability versus like not having an image in there? In my experience, like despite the majority of customers stating in surveys that they prefer HTML and like visual image-based emails, research shows time and time again that simpler emails and especially plain text emails perform better 90% of the time. What's your stance on HTML versus text in emails, uh, given that every inbox and device displays emails differently? And to what extent do you believe that email design influences deliverability and performance? So I am more on like a simple side, sim simplify anything, even your email marketing. So like overwhelming the end user when they open up that email with way too many things and flashy things. I personally like simple and you are absolutely right. This study also showed that when it is simple, people can fall through, like do not overwhelm them. Like if you are a job site, do not overwhelm people with 50 different new jobs in an email. Just highlight the top four. So the same goes. It really depends what type of campaign you are doing, whether or not text makes sense versus HTML or even interactive. I have been a huge supporter of interactive email. Make it simple. If, the, if you are sending a webinar invite, and don't make people click on a link, go to a website and then register there. All of those unnecessary steps can be avoided if you just keep up with the technology interactive email or amp is not really new but the adoption is very very slow because people are like afraid of the new things or they don't know how it performs so interactive email will work for registration or doing surveys it may not work well for a marketing campaign though so it really depends where and and who is the audience. Um, and you are absolutely right. People are looking at their email on their devices and there are so many different devices out there. So one of my um, best practices recommendations to any marketer is before you send any, any campaign, major or minor, look at it, how it looks like. There are so many rendering um, tools out there. Email on Acid is one of them. Um, that Mailgun acquired a few years ago. It's a great tool. You can look how your email looks like in over 100 devices. So um, test and see how the, and a, a lot of A-B testing should be done in order to, to find that 
whether or not text versus HTML or interactive. Yeah, definitely ran a, a ton of those tests uh, throughout my career. I love that you you talked about email and asset. I've been a, a huge fan of the company, used it in uh, a bunch of different startups just to be able to see, like, especially in Microsoft, like how is our email going to look in Outlook versus uh, how it looks in, in all these other tools. But yeah, a huge fan of the, the interactive component. And uh, myself, uh, I've like uh, like hidden away a little bit from like experiments there. I, I ran a few tests a couple of years ago at a startup and uh, just like the added HTML component with the interactive side, like it, it didn't like land a lot poorly to compared to like a, a more text-based one but like we saw a similar click-through rate with like uh, the interactive one versus not but where it was interested in was like the drop-off on conversion rate when people like clicked outside of the email on the webinar form and then had to fill that out versus you know the people that just did it within that email itself um but in, in 2021 um email marketers were introduced to bimmy and amp and you actually wrote about these two emerging frameworks and you kind of explained that BIMI brand indicators for message identification displays verified logos and emails to kind of confirm authenticity and uh, usually helps with improving brand visibility and potentially engagement. AMP for emails enhances that interactive uh, features, like you mentioned, uh, aiding a lot of e-commerce companies, potentially like boosting conversion rates, having forms, surveys, purchase bus buttons like directly in the email. I'm curious, like given that BIMI and AMP both require, uh, I would say like a significant amount of effort in implementation and have limited client support. Um, do you believe that these technologies will eventually become standard practice in email? You mentioned it being a bit slow on adoption um, or or do you think they're always going to remain a, a bit more of niche applications? Um, so the hope is, yes, it will be like a standard in a near, near future. And there are some roadblocks, especially with the BIMI, um, that uh, we are working on it. There are groups and I'm very active with like uh, MOG, Messaging Anti-App Use Working Group to kind of listen in. So I attend a lot of QBRs for our enterprise customers. So we're bringing back those feedback of like, okay, registering a trademark logo can be a challenging part. So kind of, it, it is not just the brands wanting to do it. It's also the ISPs making it easy. Like Google or Gmail right now, like I can see over 70% of the marketing traffic is either Gmail or Google hosted domains and Google is supporting them. They started that project. They sort of now don't talk about it too much, but AMP was something that Google like introduced to the mass few years ago. There were some quick adoptions. It's created a lot of buzz. But as you mentioned, since the implementation has not been that easy, the brands they have had, like it took them, but we are working on it. So stay excited about these two. I am very, very excited. And hopefully in a year or two, it's not that challenging to get all of the authentication um, steps uh, taken care of. Cool. Yeah, definitely uh, two frameworks that uh, I'll, I'll keep a close eye on uh, for sure. Yeah. Bimmy actually had my current startup. We're uh, we're we're looking into like uh, getting a bit more budget to to just pay for for that uh, yearly fee and, and trying to figure out if it applies to like all of our subdomains or just like uh, we need to pay it per subdomain. But I think we figured out that it it applies to all the subdomains. But in terms of like 
email improving email deliverability and and email performance like i'm sure you've got a ton of experience here and i think you'll agree that one of the most powerful things you can do uh is personalizing your emails per users like using segmentation and especially in like micro segments and really giving valuable content to your users Obviously, this is easier said than done. And with like the hype around AI these days, many marketing automation platforms and customer engagement platforms are promising to let AI take the wheel when it comes to orchestrating the best message to send at the best time to the best user. What are your thoughts on the future of machine learning and, and natural language processing and this idea of like self-optimizing campaigns in, in email marketing? We, we just love your your take there. I think any marketer who is not going to start thinking about that, they're going to fall behind. These are emerging technologies. Uh, you, we are putting AI into our future, like A-B testing or to pick a best subject line for each campaign. So we, I totally always encourage marketers, email marketers, whenever there is a new um, um, thing coming up in the industry, don't just object it just start testing. It may or may not apply to your business. Let's say if you are sending like transactional traffic of like receipts, maybe not, but maybe you can have some insight about like what I like to purchase. And maybe like if I am shopping at Nordstrom and the receipts are being sent to me, and if I am shopping certain brands, maybe they can customize their future marketing. And they do. Actually, Nordstrom is one of those brands that I... Mm -hmm use they they do a great job in targeting me at the right time with the right content melkin has been we i think we launched send time optimization for five years ago mm -hmm. so are you familiar with what does yeah. send time optimization do so that was kind of like looking at my behavior as an end user to see what 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 is that two hours is it in the morning or at night i open up my marketing or i open up my emails like how is my engagement and target future so in, in a way, we have been doing a lot of these. Maybe we, we did not market as, oh, AI-enabled inbox placement kind of a thing. Yeah, yeah. I think that even like on the the like automated lead scoring, like AI powered yeah. send time optimization or AI powered, like subject line automated testing. There's, there's a lot of like loose terminology when it comes to yeah. like, even very simple LML stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. I, I've chatted with a couple of recent guests um, that are leading uh, customer engagement platforms that are doing stuff that is really kind of like ahead of the pack, so to speak. But like, there's also, there's always like the, like the, giant in the AI space, open AI, right? Like what happens to all these like marketing automation platforms and their AI capabilities when OpenAI releases something that's, you know, like GPT-5, GPT-6, GPT-7, and like potentially like completely supplants or makes like send time optimization just look silly with like being able to like integrate with that. Like this space itself is moving so fast and it, it definitely is really interesting. But I find that like the, the email deliverability space grounds us, so to speak, like with, with all the capabilities on like email campaign side, more the creative side of things, like email deliverability is always going to be grounded under a couple of like 
basic or not basic, but like best practices in, in the industry and being on like both sides of ISP and the vendor side, I'm, I'm curious your take here on, on just like this idea of domain reputation. So my current company, like I'm wearing the hat of email deliverability uh, specialists, and I do a lot of education within the company on, you know, the importance of domain reputation and how that's different from IP reputation and, and all that fun stuff. And, and mark, many marketers have been there. And I don't know if you've been there when you, you switched over to the vendor side, but like they've fought for weeks and explained the risks and warnings about doing it. But the bosses, the VPs decided to proceed anyway. And we're doing a huge bulk send to old leads with not so great sales promo content in an email. And what you predicted happens, awful engagement, tons of spam complaints. And now Postmaster Tool tells you that your reputation has dipped from high to bad or poor. What do you do? Do you go all hands on deck on hitting your most engaged subscribers, your best content to repair your existing domain? Or do you set up a new domain? What are your thoughts there? I usually am not a huge fan of setting up a new domain or switching traffic to the new IPs. And the reason for that is that is exactly what a gray sender would do. So your goal, and, and I agree, if you are not doing, if you are a, an email marketer for a brand and you are not doing all of these from the beginning, like you have one domain that you send your receipts, your transactional, the welcome message, the marketing, everything from one domain, and then that one domain gets blocked, then you realize, oh, something on the marketing side where went wrong, but now my transactional emails are also blocked and you want to do something about it. As And as you mentioned, the reputation of the domain in, do, in Google Postmaster has gone down from green to red. So what to do should be, it is highly recommended to segment your traffic on different subdomains as much as you can, even within the marketing, most engaged, less engaged, non-engaged, put them on a different subdomain within. There is a reputation attached to the organizational domain. But if you do have a subdomain, the subdomain reputation has a higher priority. And it's not just the domain reputation, it's the domain and IP, the combination of both matters for major ISPs. So if you have a really good um, organizational domain with a great reputation, but off of that, there is marketing1.domain.com, which doesn't have a very good reputation because maybe you are targeting less engaged customers. The good reputation of the organizational domain is not going to be impacted if the subdomain does not live up or perform as good as the organizational domain. And Google, for sure, they always look for the subdomain reputation. If none exists, then they look for the domain reputation of the organizational domain. So uh, do not, my recommendation is do not move to new IPs because then you need to warm that up and you may, you know, it's not that easy. So uh, that's why we really encourage all of our brands to make sure that they follow best practices because when the reputation is damaged, it, it really takes three to six months to repair that. Yeah, definitely agree. I love that you talked about subdomains and and, and the root domain there too. Uh, it was actually like my kind of follow-up question to that. Like, let's say the VP of sales listens to your concerns about, um, you know, the current domain rep and, and wants you to spin up a new one anyway, because like you, you told them it's going to take three, four weeks, if not 
more to to warm up a, a new one. You fight it again. You explain that warm up is is going to take longer than fixing the current one. Again, you lose. The VP tells you to do it anyways. I would love your thoughts on like demystifying this a little bit. Like you you broke it this you broke this down. The industry calls it like kind of cousin domains versus subdomains. So you talked about subdomains. Um, so for example, the cousin domain would be getcinch.com. The subdomain would be get.cinch.com. Like, is the cousin domain route like more attributed to what those gray senders and like the spammers do? It being completely separate from that organizational or or root domain versus like the the subdomain side of things. Do you have a stance there? So I don't think spammers like the gray senders. They really don't put so much time or thought mm. into what to do. They spin new domains. That's what I have seen. Rather than like when the do- domain is damaged. Rather than going and creating a subdomain, they just moved to. That is right. the behavior when I was at, on the ISP side, we saw a lot. They would just switch IPS space, they switch domains. As far as like the cousin domains is the same, like some people call it cousin domains, some people call it subdomains, both are the same. So if if there is pressure from, let's say, sales or even marketing coming and telling deliverability people, hey, we, we don't have time for six months to wait for this to repair then sure, spin up a new subdomain, again, not a domain, um, and go through the warm-up. Do not send massive email on day one because then like you are back to where you were. It has the first week is actually the magic week. Yeah. At Google, start with 100 emails, then 200, then double. Then you pass like the thousand and everything is fine. Things are going and then test. You see testing to see where are you landing. Uh, if it is going to the spam folder, then slow down. And you can always communicate with the ISPs. Both all of the major ISPs, including Google, they do have a postmaster page for to report issues. You can be very, very honest with them. So you are in this boat that you were told create a new domain or subdomain. So make sure to start a slow and communicate. If you see a pushback, if you see spam foldering with your seed testing, communicate with Google. They usually so here's the trick part with with Gmail. They don't write you back. They don't even <laughs> give you a ticket number, but they are listening. So Interesting. do not let that discourage you from communicating with them. They just don't have the bandwidth to reply, but they care. Like the Gmail Postmaster team is one of the most, why? Because over 70% of the marketing traffic is run on Google. So they want mm. that traffic. If they make it difficult for marketers, people are going to switch to other providers. So they do have benefit in there too. So they are solving, they are listening and things happen. The domain reputation may sink, but yeah, you can always start fresh. Very cool. That's, that's super great advice. I don't, I don't know if I've ever heard that, that piece before. Like I've definitely heard a lot of email marketers that get into trouble that are just like, uh, at, at Microsoft or at Google, like they fill out the form, like, please help me. Like we're landing in spam now. And it was a mistake and they don't hear back. And they're just like, oh, I didn't hear back. Like, I, I guess I need to spin up a new, a new domain to fix this. Like, I love your take there. Like, even if you don't hear back, like there is a team that doesn't have bandwidth to respond to everything, but they do keep an eye on, on on the the form requests that that are filled out so yeah that's that's really great advice i was i was going to ask you about like how many subdomains is too many under a brand is there like a limit like is does google look at like 
the volume of subdomains related to an organizational one is no, no limit? No, no limits whatsoever. And it's something to touch on a real life experience. I was solving a problem for someone who was having a spam foldering issue with, with Microsoft. They did open up a ticket, but it was a Microsoft uh, 365 domain. So another team was looking. So they came back to me after two weeks and Kate, did you hear from Microsoft? I said, no, but can you send another test? And they did. And I said, see, it's solved. So even Microsoft of the world, because Microsoft does have a ticketing system, you get a ticket number. It's always test to see if you are still spam foldering, then start escalations or reaching out. And there is absolutely no limit uh, into the, like it's not a bad thing if you have a thousand subdomains versus if you have 10. Gotcha. Very cool. Uh, you touched on this a little bit, but I want to like reemphasize this. So like, subdomain reputation is really separate from the organizational domain or, or the root domain. Uh, I'll give you an example. Let's say, like you said, your your first example was like, let's say you've got a subdomain for your least engaged audiences, your colder leads. Um, let's say you send out a campaign, your VP told you to do it from sales and you got like a, a three plus percent spam complaint on it and your reputation dips. If you keep using that and you keep like, trying to to make that work and you don't change your behavior you never like sunset any of those users is there ever a risk that the poor reputation from that subdomain that you're using on less engaged people ever ladders up to the organizational domain are they always going to be separate in in google's eyes uh, in google's eyes for sure it won't impact zero impact smaller isps not so advanced could be okay and I'm not going to mention a smaller ISPs because I have a lot of peers in the industry. I don't <laughs> want but I can tell you at Google, it doesn't matter. Very cool. It's Interesting. Zero impact. Okay. I want to I wanna touch on uh, another uh, topic related to this. So you mentioned seed lists and, and doing testing to see where you land in, in inboxes. And um, there is a new category. I wouldn't say new, but like a category that keeps popping up for me is this idea of warm-up vendors and inbox placement platforms. Uh, I'd love to get your take on this and, and whether you think that only gray or, or gray senders or, or spammers use these tools, but they, they get a really bad reputation in email geeks like i'm part of that slack channel and in some cases it's well deserved because it is used by like some shady people that are doing phishing and fraud but there's kind of two buckets of tools that i see there's platforms that use seed lists like you mentioned they're not real people they're like fake inboxes and they're owned by the seed listing platforms it like the impact that you get on that seed list isn't one-to-one -one correlated to like your own list mm -hmm. but there's like a second category that i really want to talk about platforms that have a network of verified inboxes that simulate engagement so these aren't like seed inboxes in the sense that there are real verified inboxes there like a company is paying to use and set up those like workspace accounts and the platform itself is basically um, like they have a network of those real verified inboxes and they belong to real users not the vendor and this means that you're not sending or receiving engagement from seed accounts like you're testing your deliverability to a verified inbox but on the other side of it 
all these other verified inboxes that you're testing placement to, they have an algorithm that simulates engagement. So I can create like 10 inboxes in one of those inbox placement tools. And I like press send on being able to like send out those emails. The tool itself sends out those emails. It's like fake B2B <laughs> type content. <laughs> and when they land in those other inboxes of verified company accounts from those other people in that network, if they land in spam, they have an algorithm that takes it out of spam, puts it in the inbox. They reply to that email automatically. So all those like positive engagement signals, it's all automated. All the sending is automated and they do that threshold up and down. Anyways, like I, I would love your take. Like, is this a hard no for you on, on these tools? What are your thoughts on like inbox placement platforms like these? Yes. So some, I have heard of these, some call it like Intel, IntelliSeeds, or there has been these like names or buzzwords uh, circulating in the industry. Anything that it is not like, even the ones that they say, oh, there is a human behind it. They are like, no, some paid people somewhere in the world that they are just engaging with the emails or taking things. If you are dealing at a large, smaller scale, it may work short term. But long-term, like Google, Google can, their system is so advanced in figuring out what is real versus not real. And as soon as you, they feel like you are gaming something, then it will have a, like a long lasting impact on your domain reputation. So I am not a huge fan and I haven't seen data to support it. I have seen whomever who has used these, they I mean, I, I have seen one example of a very short-term um, like improvement in engagement or coming out of the spam folder, but long-term, I solely rely on the end users and their preference because at the end of the day, that's end user. And a lot of these things may not, may be against like some privacy laws. So that's why Google has not been a huge advocate. And they I have seen them on panels several times that they have they they may not even like the seed testing uh, or just saying, oh, when you reach out to Google and say, hey, my emails are going to the spam folder in my seed testing. And then in real life, they are not because there is no engagement with the seed. So we encourage seed testing as one of the five things to do, mm -hmm. not only things to do before you send major campaigns. It can give you an idea. If there is a problem, you can say, oh, the seeds are also showing a spam folder. But I wouldn't just say, okay, do seed testing. If everything is inboxing, you are golden. If everything is going to the spam folder, you are broke. No, that's not it. So there is a combination of different signals. Seed testing is one to troubleshoot. And I, yeah, I it's something about these like intelligence seeds that doesn't sit well with me. So I am not a huge supporter. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it makes sense. Cause it is, it, it doesn't feel like they're, they're gaming yeah. the system a yeah. little bit. Right. And <laughs> for, for like an email marketer, like at heart, like I care the most about sending valuable content to a list of people that have opted in to receive that content. Like that's like golden rule to me. Right. And 
The reality, though, is like as much as most email geeks at heart would like to never touch outbound or cold emails ever in their careers and, and only work with like cool AI MarTech, like the reality is sometimes you don't have a choice. And especially when you're in marketing or in RevOps, you're supporting sales teams doing prospecting. Um, Cinch can't even get away completely from it, like citing outbound and responsibility and some of the roles posted on your account exec and in your SDR role. Like it's a natural part of the business. Like sometimes you just need to do prospecting and, and cold outreach and cold emails, even though email marketers don't love them. What advice would you have for, for marketers that are stuck in, in these roles supporting outbound email? So I think we do not much. We used to. We used to do a cold outreach, but we didn't actually see a lot of results. Like I'm pretty sure you are seeing a lot when you open up your inbox from all of these vendors. Oh, yeah. There is so much coming in and I don't know, did COVID make things worse? Because everybody was like, oh, now everybody is at their computer. Let's just <laughs> maximize the use of email because email works. The return of investment is $40 for each dollar spent, that kind of a thing. We did not. We did have the cold outreach. We used um, different platforms. They sent email on my behalf, for example. Uh, like K Noruzi. Like if my email was Kate at Melgon, they made it K Noruzi at Melgon. And then they send on behalf of me saying, like, so here is the catch. Google understand this is not the real you. Mm -hmm. They can't see signals and they will flag it. So there is a possibility it goes to the spam folder. There is also a possibility of like why we are overwhelming end users. We, we already have problem with the ones that they gave us their email addresses, right? <laughs> right? Keeping them engaged. Now, why would you add another level of cold outreach? So I'm not a huge fan and I have been very, very vocal about it internally with our marketing team. And I'm like, I barely, I mean, cold email or cold calls. I mean, these days I also receive calls on my cell phone for, yeah. so... Yeah, definitely agree. My inbox is <laughs> for sure filled with some of these. And um, like, thankfully, a lot of them like I never see because they, they, they go through the spam folder or at least like in the promo tab. But like the odd time, like they will get through in, 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 in the focused inbox. And like, I have no problem hitting spam complaint on, on all of those because none of them have opt out links at, at the bottom of the emails. But yeah. Yeah, because they say, oh, this is transactional, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> not transactional, never asked for, for your sales pitch there. Uh, it's like the folks that connect with you on LinkedIn. You're just like, oh, okay, you're kind of in the same industry. You accept right away, like sales pitch. Like this is the same thing as doing cold outreach. And yeah, I hate it too. <laughs> Um, yeah, we're getting close on time. I'd love to uh, get your take on um, this this unique idea of email performance. We talked about that a little bit at the the top of the show. I had a guest on the show that that um, talked about uh, th this like reminder effect of, of email marketing. I've I spent most of my career focusing on like improving email performance and using tactics that range from like engagement tracking and UTM code to complex multi-touch attribution and experimentation to demonstrate the effect effectiveness of email. Recently, though, another guest on the podcast really made me think about whether 
we've been thinking about this wrong. And, and I'd love to get your take. So his name is Pini Yakul. He's the CEO of OptiMove. And he calls this, where do emails go when the lake freezes? He essentially argues that click and purchases or even opens are the wrong, the wrong way to attribute marketing influenced revenue because emails impact way more customers than just those who open and click in emails. Basically, the simple fact of landing in the inbox and giving someone a, hey, remember us type of message could prompt purchases either right now or in the future. And even if they don't open and, and click that email, maybe they remember it a few days or they, they go back on your site later. So I know that like many marketers will think this is crazy and we can't just assume someone receiving an email can be attributed to a purchase. But if you're running experiments and incre incremental testing, we could measure it like a 50-50 test where these people don't get the email and then the other 50 tests, they get the email. We don't look at like clicks or opens, but we can see a massive list on purchase from people that did get the email. Like clearly there's something going on there. So that's kind of where Penny is coming from. He's got the data to back it up. He's at like a, a consumer uh, email mm -hmm. platform, but his example shows like 143 people clicked on the email, but his incremental report shows like over a thousand people ended up buying. So anyways, long winded question. We know that deliverability is arguably what matters most in email. Kate, what if that's actually the only thing that matters? Would love your take to your. So the, I, I have that habit too, that I like glance at a subject line. For example, I'm, I'm looking to get a um, new home warranty. So there is a lot, because I did give my email address to one of these vendors when I was looking at prices. And I, now I am receiving from all different vendors and I, and it's okay. Even though if I'm not opening them, if one of them has something like really uh, like bold in the subject line, like I would go to the website. I may ne never open the email or click on anything. I'll just go to the website and, and compare. So it's like you are driving in a highway and you see the billboards, like the name, then it is familiar. It's like you see a brand in a subject line. So that's why it's really important to make sure you're from address and you do a proper, you are very, uh, you, you need to have your intent very clear in the subject line. That's why subject line is so important. Maybe even more important than the content, because if the subject line doesn't grab the attention, then people won't. So you need to look at the entire customer journey. So good brands know if I have been active on their website, then they can send me more specialized emails. So I would not discount. I agree with what it was said. I would not discount or remove like non-click, non-opens. Again, click and open are one of the like 10 different factors we need to look at in order to define a successful campaign not the only like yeah i totally agree some of the marketers are like if no opens click remove them i'm not no let's see if they have been active on different so there is an all or also for example on our platform since we have we sent uh on behalf of like hundreds and thousands different brands we know kate at gmail.com whether or not i have been active at pinterest Versus, mm -hmm. So we have a tool called a verification. It takes engagement into consideration. If there has been zero engagement forever, we mark it as high risk because it could be a spam trap. But if there has been some engagement, we would just 
assign a different level of riskiness so you can segment them send them from different subdomain but yeah i would not i am not a huge advocate of yeah remove everything or i mean i would encourage people to take into consideration like 12 months activity but um but yeah some people like me i glance subject lines i even sometimes i kept them unread because i know i want to go back so it's mm -hmm. a reminder for me to go Very check it interesting. Out. Yeah, I love your analogy of the the billboard. Like too often in 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 the advertising space, and especially just like social paid social mm -hmm. impressions is like one of the most important metric. We don't get impression data on emails, but essentially, like the closest thing we have is deliverability and and inboxing rate. And you know, you don't just report on the value of ads by people clicking through on it and like converting. There's the whole idea of like awareness generating. And I feel like email doesn't really get a seat at that awareness generating table. It's usually like a direct response channel where if people don't open and click, like clearly that email wasn't valuable. But yeah, this is painting an interesting uh, channel here, or an interesting picture here. And I guess like one of the takeaways is like marketers shouldn't just report on engagement data from their emails and they should set up uh, holdout groups or incremental testing to really see the value of people that don't click through or open, but still end up purchasing or creating other type of activity. Yep. 100% agree with all what you just mentioned. Very cool. This has been a, a enlightening and, and fascinating conversation. <laughs> I feel like I could come up with like 25 more questions for you, Kate, but I'll I'll end with this last one. You're, you're a writer, a keynote speaker, a volunteer, a triathlete, a spiritual gangster, an advisor memory board, a investor, and a committee co-chair. You've got a lot going on. Uh, one question we ask all of our guests on the Humans of Martech is, how do you remain happy and successful in your career? How do you find balance between all the things you're working on while staying happy? Um, I think it, at the beginning of my career, I was away a lot on business trips and I was super busy working. Maybe I did not give the attention I wanted to my children. Now they are in college. So that everybody is home for summer. I try to maximize my time um to like they are a priority i try to wrap up work around four or five before i would go to eight or nine if there was so i am making i think it's either my age like the older i get my priority changes or maybe it's like a little bit of that regret of like okay maybe i was not present when they had a tennis match now i try to be more present for my family and um like walking away from anything that is not serving you well in the past i stayed at a career that i was extremely unhappy towards the end mm. and i should have left sooner so just moving away from anything that is not serving you as being happy just walk away from it so just delaying that is and saying no of course like <laughs> that is kind of comes together like dragging my feet on um anything that uh, my heart is not there. So I'm listening more to my heart these days. And it seems that it it does a big contribution to my happiness. Love it, Kate. Great advice for, for the listeners. Appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on the show and sharing your email deliverability wisdom. Uh, this is super valuable for me and, and hopefully for, for the listeners, I'm sure as well. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed our collaboration.